scriptures with you, would you please turn to the book of Colossians? And while you're turning, let me remind you what we're doing in December. We're talking about worship. Preparing for 1992 when we will be talking about God's purpose for our lives, why he made us. It's important to open our hearts so that we can discern spiritually why God made us. Last week, we talked about worship is not bringing God down to where we are and confining him to where we are, parochializing God, making God smaller so that he can seem nearer. It is not like the woman who said, well, is he on the mountain or is he in Jerusalem? Which is it? It is very much like Jesus' response. Those that come to him must come in spirit and in truth. Something that transcends all local places, all local mentalities. So we do not bring God to make him more like us. We go up to God to become more like him. We transcend our circumstances. And when we praise God, that's exactly what we do. There is a vertical relationship of going up to God. Now there is a second part of that definition. And the second part involves the horizontal part. Because you see what happens when people fall in love with God. The first and immature reaction is to confine their focus to God himself. Or secondarily, if not to God himself, to those who love God. Or secondarily, to the church. Or, or thirdarily, or fourtharily, or whatever. See, But they keep in close, and they grow narrow. And they believe, in order to be holy, I must cut off all other options. But I want to show you a side of worship today that you don't ordinarily associate with worship, probably. But it is the second part of the definition of worship. Let me read to you from Colossians. And he, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, look at this word, all creation. For by him... All things were created, both in heavens and earth, and on the earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Are you getting the idea here? What are the two operative words there? One is all and the other is him, right? Meaning Christ. Therefore, from that scripture, I want to talk to you this morning about the other part of the definition of worship, which is really the definition of life. And that is that God has a plan and a connectedness to all of his creation. There is nothing left out of his plan, and there is no one left out of his plan. Now, in saying that to you, 
something will come to mind to you experienced Christians, something that's very true. You have heard the saying, unless Christ is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And I want to reinforce that uh, saying to you this morning. Because I want to show you this morning just how connected everything is in the plan of God so that you can see God in everything. First of all, I want to introduce to you the danger of modern scientific inquiry, but the growth of modern scientific inquiry. Years ago, Tertullian, second century father, said, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And it would be even more appropriate, as the song says, how far to Bethlehem. What has Bethlehem to do with Athens? Those two cities were the symbol of worship, of when God came down. Do they have anything to do with one another? Athens being the symbol of all Western civilization, of philosophic, biologic, scientific inquiry. That was where it all began. And Tertullian, the early church father, says... Do they have anything to do with each other? As we have progressed in our investigation of the world, until the last 15 years, there has been a reductionistic mentality in the inquiry into the world. That is, you reduce things to their smallest component parts. And you investigate the world by investigating the microcosm of how the world is organized. The problem with that is that you lose all value that connects the world together. You, you fail to see the big picture. And so your values get all messed up. You start to go after the knowledge of the small instead of the picture of the large. This incidentally happens to Christians too, and I'll show you why in a minute. There was a microbiologist, a Christian microbiologist, John Medina, who was having a conversation with one of the most brilliant geneticists alive today. And they were talking in a restaurant, and they were talking about research and, and uh, absolutely fascinating conversation. This man was not a Christian. He was an unbeliever. He saw all the world as cells organized in sequence. And so therefore, uh, John was interested in when he told about this cat that he used to have. He loved this cat. And the cat died, and he missed that cat to this day very, very much. As a matter of fact, he had since gotten married and since had a child, and, and he often wondered whether or not if his wife, he wondered out loud, I'm sorry, if his wife and child died, if he'd missed them as much as he missed the cat. John was curious, and he said, let me pose a picture for you. Let's say that we are in Vietnam, and let's say that you are in your house with your cat, and let's say an enemy breaks in and has a boy with him and points the gun to the boy's head. And he communicates to you, I can either kill this boy or I can kill your cat. What would you say? The geneticist did not even hesitate. Oh, he said, I'd have him kill the boy. John was rocked back. But he knew that simple biochemical sophistication if that's all your life was, in seeing everything as a sequence of cells, one does not have more value than the other except for your relationship to it. So what other answer could he give? He loved the cat more than the boy. 
There was no bigger picture of the value of life that he had. Now, here's what I want to say to you this morning. If God is Lord over all the earth, if God has pulled it together, then that is where we must get our values from. And that is how we can see how marvelous this world is and how God is in all the parts of the world. You know, odds against existence, biologically speaking, are enormous. Just for life, thousands upon millions of cells must be arranged just right and act sequentially with the right chemistry. And if in them, thousands of millions of genes must act just right, the odds against that are enormous. The odds against our existence in this atmosphere are enormous. Everything must act in concert. Life is so fragile. Not only that, but those things that we think are accident. Now science, as I, as I began to tell you at the beginning, now science is beginning to connect and see a pattern. You know the newest science and the hottest science around is the science of chaos. James, Gle James uh, uh, Gleick wrote a book uh, simply entitled Chaos, talking about the physicists and, and others who are beginning to see a pattern in, in what they used to see as singularity, singular happenings, um, spontaneous uh, um, uh, happenings. And they, they, they are beginning to pull it together into a pattern where it fits. Now even chaos has a pattern. If you go into the world anthropologically, if you, if you look at different, sociologically, you look at different cultures. I read not too long ago the story of a missionary, a Wycliffe Bible translator, who happened to be in China and beginning to translate the Bible into the Chinese language. Well, of course, as things go, you get very discouraged, work goes slow, and you begin to curse Babel. You curse the day that God ever let there be, let alone made there be, lots and lots of different languages. However, he prayed that God would give him insight so that he could do his job. And he began to see things in that language that were preset for the understanding of the Christian gospel. Listen to this. Do you know that the picture of the word, they have caricatures for, for written language, the caricature for the word righteous in Chinese is a lamb over the symbol for I. So it would be picture translated as I under the lamb am righteous. What more perfect translation of the gospel can you have than that? The picture for the word boat is a raft with eight mouths around it, feeding from it. How many people were there on Noah's Ark? Eight. Listen to this. The picture for man is an upside-down Y. The picture for tree is a man is a cross over that, so it looks like a man hanging on a cross. The picture for come 
is two other figures by that man hanging on the cross, and it all symbolizes mankind. Mankind then, literally, in Chinese language, I had a Japanese student here last night who showed it to me. Literally, the picture for come is mankind coming to a man hanging on the cross. When he saw that, he showed that to the Chinese people. And their response was, we have always believed that Christianity was a foreign religion. Now we have seen in our own language that God has made a way for us to understand what Christ is. Do you see the importance of seeing all of God in everything? That God really is the Christ over all creation. Not to go with the temptation of disassociating, well, the things that aren't Christian aren't important. The, the things that I don't relate to, I can separate myself from. I find this fascinating. They did a study on Einstein's brain. I just think this is absolutely fascinating. I don't, I don't know how they did it, but they got the brain from the cranium, and a Dr. Marion Diamond was the neurologist that did this study. One of the things that she found, one of the differences in Einstein's brain and a normal brain, was in the parietal lobe, there is a, a, a section that is the association cortex. Um, it does not receive direct stimuli, but it interprets the stimuli from other lobes that have received direct stimuli. Einstein always said that his best ideas came from the association of ideas and images. When they studied his brain, in a normal human brain, there, there's, a, there's a cell linked with associ association called the glial cell. In a normal human brain, the ratio of normal neurocells to glial cells is, is two to one. They far outnumber these glial cells. In Einstein's brain, the ratio was one-to-one. One. There were as many cells for association of normally disassociated ideas as there were normal brain cells. Now, what does that have to do with us? I believe that God wants the same thing from us when we become believers. He doesn't want us to become narrow in the things just of Christianity. He wants us to be able to associate the whole world to Him. To see how things fit together. Anselm said, I believe that I may understand. In other words, believing ought to make me more connected to the world. So therefore, worship is not just going to God by yourself. The other part of worship is seeing how everything fits together. Now there is one more, one more thing to this horizontal picture. And that is not just seeing the picture, but contributing to the picture. Uh, turn to uh, the, uh, Romans chapter one, or 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Let me show you something here. The definition of worship as Paul sees it. You 
If we begin to see horizontally, what should our response be? This is our response. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That is a definition of worship. You know what? Most of us believe our, our uh, job in the world is to come up with answers. Nothing could be further than the truth. In the first place, if you've, learned, if you've lived a very long time, you will know by now nobody's interested in your answers. I mean, it, no matter how many solutions you come up with, somebody else has a solution or has a solution of their own. We stand around half the time going, you want to know what's wrong with the world? I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. And people immediately start yawning. That's not what we're here for. I went by the phone the other day, and my oldest was on the phone. I know you get tired of these home illustrations, but I'll cut down on them someday. But for right now, they serve a purpose. He had been having trouble with an organization that he belongs to, and he was talking to the head of that organization. And I didn't hear the whole conversation, but I heard this as I was passing by. He said, I didn't want to come to you and say, look, this is not working until I could figure out how I could contribute. I thought, that is exactly the point. That is exactly the other side of worship. What are you to add to this world? That's what worship is. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's your spiritual service of worship. You know what? Um, I was going to say something I forgot. I just drew a blank. Wow is right. Free associate. Quick, free associate. Okay. I, I can't come up with it. But anyhow, it is our job to contribute. God so loved the world, he, what? Gave. What did he give? Did he give answers? Did he give solutions? Gave himself, didn't he? Isn't that what we celebrate? He gave himself. That's your job. And not just to give like this, but to give like this. Now let me tell you what happens if you become contributors instead of answer people. One of the things that happens is that as you give, God begins to use your contribution of whatever you have given of yourself in ways you could not have predicted before. Most of us, in order to give, have to see the result because we want to invest in something we know how it's going to come out. Well, if you're bright enough to see all those results, more power to you. But I don't know very many people like that. God doesn't call for us to know the result. He just calls for us to give. Um, one of the fascinating things to me is what happens when we begin to give to, to call forth that which is of God in the world. Because that's exactly what, we happen, what happens. When we act like God, we become God incarnate. When we give like God, we become God incarnate, and things change. Unpredictably. We couldn't have imagined it. There is an analogy to this that I read. There is something inside of us called a master gene. Now, Master genes are not like normal genes. The master gene, la uh, correctly labeled, is, is the MYOD1 gene. 
And when the MYOD1 gene is stitched into a cell, it just takes over. I mean, it just takes over. And the cell is absolutely transformed. Now, let me give you an example of what happens. When an MYOD1 gene is stitched into a fat cell, that fat cell begins to become striated. It begins to elongate. It attaches itself to bone. In other words, the fat cell literally becomes a muscle. A muscle. That's how I see us contributing like God contributed. There's something implanted in the world that changes the character of the world. When I think about giving to this land over here, Beck and I are scraping all that we can just to give to that land. We're not buying a piece of land. I could care less about buying land that cars can park on. But what I see is God using that for hundreds of years to come, long after I'm dead, to implant Christ into people's lives. And it changes them from some old blob waiting around to be useful, well, just call on me when you need it, to something that can literally affect the world. When we contribute, which is our spiritual service of worship, the world changes. Things are different. And it's not a sense of manipulation. It's a sense of God literally making them like he wants them. Second thing that happens is that we stop a cancer. Ron Thyman, who is the dean of Harvard Divinity School, wrote a book, Constructing a Theology for the Public. And in that book, he said this. He said, there is a cancer in this land. And there is a cancer in this church. And the cancer is individualism. It is people withdrawing from what used to be a common term. And the term is the common good. The common good. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says, For God gives gifts according to his will for the common good. This country was built on the pretense that people would be interested not only in what was good for them as individuals, but what was good for everybody as individuals. The country is slowly disintegrating, slowly reducing back to those separate parts that I talked about at the very beginning. We don't care what's good for the common good anymore. We care what's good for us. We become parts of little interest groups who want to promote our own personal individual good, and it is a cancer. We associate with other people who think just like we do and who will tell us, boy, I like you, but I don't like anybody else. Could I give you some of the most useful advice you will ever have in your entire life right now? Listen to this. Remember this. Be very, very, very careful of people who love you and no one else. You know why? Because those people don't know how to love very well. And sooner or later, you will become a part of the group of no one else. When somebody comes to me and says, Hunter, I love this church. This is the only church I've ever seen that has anything on the ball. Right then, I'm real careful. Because I think, sooner or later, we're going to become part of that list. If the person, you know, when we're, when we're adolescents, we love this. We, we seek this kind of love. 
We want some some gal or some guy to say to us, boy, you're just the best thing that ever happened to me. I can't stand my mom. I can't stand my dad. I can't stand my sisters. I haven't got any friends. You're the only person in the world that I love. And we think it's the greatest thing in the world. That characterizes immature, unstable love. If, however, there is a person with the character of God who can love something and see something of value in everyone their love for you will be more intense and more long-lasting because they aren't loving, they are lovers. That is in their character. It's like the character of God. Therefore, to eradicate unstable love, you must broaden your appreciation and respect of all people. Now, what am I saying here? That everybody's going to get saved? Absolutely not. There are people who will reject Christ We're not talking eschatologically here. We're talking incarnationally. We're talking about you not making those judgments. And we're talking about developing the character of Christ within yourself for everybody. Why? Because God cares for everybody. You know what? After the fall, this world did not become plan B. This this world has always been plan A. And God has a purpose for everything in this world, even even if it's as a bad example. There is a purpose for everyone and everything. And when you begin, and I'll I'll end with this, when we begin to say, this has value, but this does not, we're in a lot of trouble. Because we ourselves can get on the this does not list. I don't remember, I don't know how many of you remember back in 1984, the baby doe case that happened in Bloomington, Indiana. There was a baby born with Down syndrome. And um, there was a blockage in the intestine of the baby. He was born to older parents. Um, and the blockage was a very simple thing to correct surgically. And the parents would not allow that doctor to correct that surgery. And the doctor sat down with them and said, First of all, you can't predict the extent of Down syndrome when this baby is first born. And second of all, Down syndrome babies are the most loving, most wonderful people. They're just great. You just, you know, we're talking about a person here. But they did not want a defective baby. The doctor took it to the court system and said, Look, we're talking about a human being here. You know, it's simple to correct and let this baby live. And the court system turned him down. And the baby died. Because the parents said, no surgery on this baby. There was a follow-up article in the New York Times written by a Peter Singer and a Helga uh, Cruze. And in that article, they said this. We must get past the idea that all human life is equal and all human life is valuable. All human life is not equally valuable And we ought to be able to tell the difference. I say to you, that's the most dangerous statement ever made in this world. Because sooner or later, you're not going to be pretty enough. Sooner or later, you're not going to be valuable enough. Sooner or later, whoever is making that decision will make it not on the basis of God, but on the basis of their own human ideals of what is worthy and what is not. Let me give you the opposite idea. Pretend... You are a person who has taken up portrait painting. You love portrait painting. You don't know whether you're any good at it or not, but you you can recognize the people you've painted. 
So you so you, you take it up and you you know you get these you get four or five portraits and you kind of you know you're kind of getting into this and you really love it and you buy frames for it and you go out on the street and you set up a little portrait stand. You know, and one you have ten dollars and another you have twenty five dollars and people just kind of come by and they stop and they look and they just kind of walk on and some of them gather and at one moment somehow now this is a fantasy Rembrandt comes down the street and he stops there are people gathered around that portrait display Rembrandt looks at the portraits you've painted And he says, these are magnificent. These are absolutely rich and mature. They have the depths of anything I've ever painted. What are you doing with this price tag on here? Raise it to thousands of dollars. If you raised it to thousands of dollars, do you think people would buy it? You bet they would. Why? Because of a principle called value transfer. Because Rembrandt had transferred his opinion, his value on those portraits. Guess what? Jesus Christ has done the same thing to you. You are worthy. Because he said you are. You are worthy. Because he has said You're worthy enough for me to die for. You are worthy. Two things we need to do. First of all, we need to know that if Christ is Lord of all, then there's nothing in this world we can't relate to or can't respect. Nothing in this world that doesn't speak of God's plan. We need to broaden our view. But second of all, we need to know how personal God's love is for us. Would you pray with me? And then I'm going to ask Christian Sean to come up and close us. God, help us to know that worship is more than transcending our daily life. It is seeing you in our daily life. Help us to relate you to our relationships with people and with this world that we have never related you to before. Because we have not had in our mind that you are really Lord over all creation. And that you use everything to your good, to your glory. Help us to love people that we have deemed as worthless. And to contribute to the areas of life that we have held back in contributing to. Because we want to give as you gave. And we want to love as you loved. And if we do that, then we will be worshiping you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.